So we begin our reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. You know, I remember the joy of having our children, bringing our children home for the first time. And when your children are first born, you've got all kinds of hopes and dreams for them. Obviously that they would come to know Christ as their Savior and then they would grow in that relationship with Christ. But I had no idea what each of my kids would end up maybe wanting to, to do for a living or different paths that they would pursue or hobbies that they would have interest in. But you know you have those things that you want, the, the right path that you want to get them on and, and the things that are going to lead toward the best life for them and principles that you can instill within them that will help them to pursue that godly life and to enjoy the blessings and the benefits that come from that godly lifestyle. Well, you know what? God's no different with His family than we are with ours, except He's, except he's better at it. And His love is more complete and His desires are more full. And what is He talking to them about? He's talking to them about there, the word He uses is walk. If you remember back to our study in Ephesians, the last half of the book of Ephesians, He uses the word walk. Walk in wisdom. Walk in love. Walk in holiness. Walk in unity. Well, he kind of does the same thing here with the Thessalonians. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Well, if we skip forward a little farther than we read, go to verse 12. He says, So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This chunk of Scripture begins and ends with the same concept, and that is how you walk. Now, walking to Him obviously is an allusion to something greater. He's talking about how you flesh out your relationship with God, how you live your life. You see, the way that we live our life is a reflection of the things that we believe. Because the things that we truly believe, we live according to those. If we say that we believe them, but we don't live according to them, then I think we're fooling ourselves. Is This idea of walk obviously doesn't mean just going for a stroll. It means how you walk through this world. And that's what he wants to talk to him about. He says, first of all, I want your walk to be a walk that is pleasing to God. You need to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And then in verse 12, he says, and you're going to be doing that before outsiders. In other words, not everybody's going to understand why you're doing the things you're doing and what you're doing, but you need to continue to live out that walk even in the presence of people that may not agree with you. And so his idea of walking at this point is really symbolizing right living. That we need to be living rightly before God. We need to be doing those things that please Him. There's a word that we use for that kind of living. And it is the word holiness. In verse 4, he says that each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness. In verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. The word holiness means to be separate from sin. And God's nature is holiness. He's, he's holy. And Peter would compel us that we are to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. God is perfectly good and separate from sin. And so that's what we're supposed to live up to as well. Well, there's another word in the passage that is very closely related to it. And it's the word sanctification. 
In verse 3 it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Our sanctification means it's that process of making us holy. Holy means separate. It means separate from sin. Sanctification means that we are separated from our sin and we're separated to God. We're not just negatively holy. In other words, just separate from our sin. We're also positively separated to God. Which, by the way, this is what happened to you at the cross. right? Jesus died for your sin so that He could take it off of your shoulders and put it on His. So you, through faith in Christ, are now separate from your sin. And He died to bring you to God. You're separated unto God. And so Jesus Christ is sanctifying us through His work on that cross, through His death and His resurrection. But now here's where our part comes in. And it's not our part alone, because it's God who is at work in us that gives us the motivation and the strength to do it. But our part is, then we need to flesh out that righteous. If we're separate from our sin, then we need to live separate from our sin. If we're separated unto God, then we need to live like children of God. Because that's what we are. We need to flesh out that identity. It's very practical in our, in our lives. You know, the word sanctified, it's from that same root word that we get our word saints. The Bible always describes us without Christ as sinners. You know what? The Bible hardly ever, there's only one place that is a possibility, refers to a believer as a sinner ever again. You know what it calls you over and over and over as a believer? A saint. A saint is not some superhero Christian. The Roman Catholic Church got to the point where they've kind of treated sainthood like the Hall of Fame. Right? A lot of people, people play football, but only certain ones are going to make it to the Hall of Fame. A lot of people play baseball. Only certain ones are going to make it to the Hall of Fame. The Catholic Church has kind of treated sainthood that way. That is not how the Bible uses the word saint at all. The Bible uses the word saint of everybody that's a believer in Jesus Christ. Why? Because through faith in Christ, you are sanctified. You are made holy. You are set apart for God. You know, unfortunately, every once in a while, I hear even a believer in Jesus Christ make some statement almost in a bragging way where they say, well, I'm no saint. You know what? It just makes me want to say, you want to be careful what you're bragging about because that means you're going to hell. If you're not a saint, you're going to hell. Because if you're not a saint, you're not sanctified. You're not set apart to God. And so, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. And so, if if you have things in your life that you don't quite want to own that sainthood, you may be better really check things over in your faith. Because the fact of the matter is, when you put your faith in God, Jesus Christ has sanctified you. You are sanctified in Him. You are a saint. You see, if, if they're really a genuine believer, then the only question comes about is, are you living like it? Or are you a hypocrite? The Apostle Paul, as he writes to these Thessalonians, he doesn't want them to be a hypocrite. He wants them to continue to flesh out their faith as they have been before. To grow in that relationship with God. Well, as we look at this right living, then what does sanctification look like in my life? Well, let's recognize, first of all, that sanctification is mandatory. God makes it very clear that He has made us holy through the cross and He expects us to live holy and righteous and blameless in our relationship with Him. You know, in chapter 4 and verse 3, He says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God. He's not inviting them to pray about it. He's not saying, look, this is something I'd like you to pray about. I'd like you to ask God about whether He wants you to uh, abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is the most general term of sexual sin in the, in the New Testament. And it just means any sexuality that is outside the bounds of marriage. He's not saying you need to pray about this and ask God what He wants you to do in regard to this thing. He's just telling them, look, this is the will of God. It is God's will that you grow in your personal holiness and you grow closer to Him. It is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
He's not leaving much room for discussion here. This is not brain surgery. This is not difficult. It's not a tough subject. It's just plain and simple. This is what's right and this is what's wrong. This is what God's will is for your life. You know, when my kids were born into this world, I didn't know what God's will would be for their life. Like I said earlier, for what occupation they would do or hobbies that they would get into. But you know what? When I read through the Bible, I don't really find God's will being expressed that way. Other than a few people that he calls here and there to be specifically be apostles or John the Baptist or something like that. I don't see a lot of God's will talking about like our occupations and our hobbies and those things. You know what God's will is continually referring to is our morality. There are certain things that are against the nature of God, and so we need to not go there. And there are things that are in favor of the nature of God, and we need to be planted firmly there. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, look, this is God's will. Well, not only that, in verse 5, he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the, an avenger in all of these things. In other words, God says, I'm not sitting on the sidelines on this one. My will is for you to be sanctified, for you to be separate yourself from sexual sin and other sins. I will avenge where these things take place. God says, I will get involved in judgment in your life dealing with this issue. That means he's pretty strong about it. In fact, notice it says, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. That means that at this point in the sermon, the Apostle Paul is not using a joke. It was somber. It was serious. And so we see God's will reflected in exactly that warning. And then in verse 7, it says, For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. So the, the, notice the contrast. There's, no, there's nothing in the middle. It's either impurity or it's holiness. It's not a gray area. These are black and white issues, and we need to be on the right side of these issues. First Thessalonians chapter 4, and verse 8, he says, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul's saying, you're not disregarding me. He says, you're disregarding God. This is the commands of God. And he says, if, if you're going to make light of it, you're going to shove it aside. You know who, you're shoving aside God, not, not us, not people. It's not a man-made commandment. You know, there's been many conversations that I've had about marriage with people over the years, and often a common thing that comes up is, well, why do I need a piece of paper, a man-made piece of paper, to tell me uh, how dedicated I am? And you know what? The answer, again, is very simple. You know, it's that piece of paper that is the dedication. That actually is the marriage. You see, a marriage is a covenant, and we're talking about sexuality that's exercised outside of marriage. The reason that's so immoral is because it's outside of the covenant of marriage. God is a covenant-making God. You watch down through the history of the Old Testament and right up to the New. Why are we in the New Testament? Because we're in this new covenant that He makes with us, this new binding agreement that He has made with us, that He'd pay for our sin and we get to go to heaven through faith in Christ. But God made a covenant with Abraham that He would bless him and make his name great and then bless the whole world through him. He made a covenant with, with Moses. He made a covenant back with Noah after the flood. He made a covenant with David that, that David's descendant would be the one that would sit on his throne. Jesus Christ being the descendant of David. And so God continually makes covenants with His people whereby He can show Himself to be faithful to them and demands faithfulness from them. And Israel was always judged according to what? Their unfaithfulness in the covenant with God. God is a faithful God. And so he makes binding relationships, binding covenants with us. And that's what marriage is. Marriage is that binding relationship. Until you sign that paper, it is not binding. People often talk to me about the commitment. I don't need that piece of paper to be committed. You might not need that piece of paper to feel committed, but you actually do need that piece of paper to be committed. You're actually not legally committed until that piece of paper is signed. Johnny and Kaylin's wedding this summer. Usually what happens is I'd always leave the paperwork in my office and then right after the wedding's over and they shake a few hands and stuff like that we go down and we sign the paperwork you know what i officiated the, the ceremony for their wedding 
and helped serve the reception afterwards. And then I headed home. And uh, my phone rings, and it's Johnny. And he's like, Greg, we didn't sign the license. So we did. We, we got it signed. And they got it in on time, right? I never did check. Okay, good. <laughs> now, <laughs> oh yeah, this is very important. This is very important because you know what? Even having done the whole ceremony, even having done the reception, with all that, if that paper doesn't get turned in, they're not married. But it's a man-made paper. God honors it. God is the one who said, you will get married. You'll make this binding covenant where you bind to them. That's why it takes a divorce to break it because it takes another legal proceeding to set it aside because it is a binding relationship and you're not in it until you're in it. And that paper is what tells you, you why doesn't nobody else have a problem with any other man-made paper? You don't have a problem with getting a driver's license to drive a car. I would dare say that all of you that took a deer already this season have a little piece of paper in your wallet that gives you the right to go out and harvest a deer, right? <laughs> but how, how, how come when it comes to the most important relationship in life, now all of a sudden it's a man-made paper and who needs that paper? Are you kidding me? This is the most important thing in life. That kind of a commitment. Why? Because it mirrors the commitment that God has for us. He always uses that relationship as, as a mirror of the relationship that we have with Him and His faithfulness toward us. It's not a man-made piece of paper. That's where the commitment is. That's where that actually takes place. So God says any sexual activity outside of that level of commitment is abominable to Him. He says, I'll have none of it. That needs to have no place in your life. Why? Because you're faithful to Me. That's part of being faithful to Me. You know, it's important enough that you realize you read through this passage of God in lists. There's all three members of the Godhood are mentioned in this short passage. Verse 3, this is the will of God. In verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. In verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So he says, look, the instructions that we're giving you, we're giving them in the Lord Jesus. We're giving them through the Lord Jesus. And then lastly, verse 8, he says, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives you His Holy Spirit. And so God has, has mentioned all members, all three members of the Trinity in this one subject. This is something obviously that God is weighing in on heavily. And He's making it very clear that it is not optional. Our sanctification, being separated from our sin and drawn closer to God, is it's mandatory. Romans chapter 13. It says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now notice this, the similar imagery. Let us walk. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm not going to take the time to read all the way through it, but you'll remember from studying this not too long ago that the, the church had somebody within the church that was, that was sinning sexually. And the, the church was held responsible. He said, the church, you need to not accept this. You need to cast that person out if they won't repent. And the church did. They cast that person out. And then in 2 Corinthians, you get to read about him repenting and coming back. And that's a great success story. But, but at any rate, he goes on in the passage. He says, look, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, if you allow sin into the church like that, it's going to affect everybody. It's going to grow. And the other people in the church will continue to participate in it. We'll, we'll start to participate as well in that sin because, well, it's not being punished, so it must be okay. And it's kind of like you look all the way back to the, to the Old Testament and, and you got to look in, in the days of Joshua when through one man, the sin that was in the camp and the whole camp paid a price for it. The church is held to account 
for the sin that it tolerates within the church. It can't be doing it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20, it says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Why is it such a big deal? I've had people ask me that question. Why is, why is sex such a big deal? Well, one, because, as we already mentioned, that covenant relationship, we're mirroring God's faithfulness to us. That is a way we're supposed to exercise faithfulness and self-control as well. The other reason, I don't even think we completely understand everything that's taking place inside a sexual relationship. Every other sin that you commit is outside your body. Actually, this one is against it. Something's happening beyond what we're understanding about what's happening. You're being damaged in ways that you might not even be aware that you're being damaged by participating in this sin. The Apostle Paul said this sin is actually different than every other sin you can participate in. This one will actually hurt you physically. And so I don't claim to know exactly what all that is, but I do know this is a big deal. But also he says, what is your body now? When you're a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, which means you are His temple. The Holy Spirit is living within inside you. And so if you sin in this way, you're sinning with the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is a huge deal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verses 9-11, through 11, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, this is one of those sins. There's a list of them there, obviously. He's saying, look, if you live in this habitually, if this is an ongoing thing for you, you don't have faith. It doesn't matter what you say. Because this will change your life. Your faith will change your life. If it's legitimate faith, it will change your life in this way. This actually is one of those issues that defines who is part of the kingdom of God and who is not. But the encouraging part comes right after that. And he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know what? That's encouraging. Because in any group that you could take this size, any group of believers that you take this side, I guarantee you that you can find that there are several, maybe even many people that have sinned against God in this way in their life. But you know what? They put their faith in Christ and they repented of their sin. They got on track and their life was changed. Galatians points out the severity of it as well. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality is the top of the list. And then after going through the list again, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5.3 says, But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. I know we've gone through quite a few verses here dealing with sexual morality. It's by no means all of them. I just collected a verse or two out of each kind of category. A category that says we need to discipline this in the church. A category that says that if you're living in this way, you're not part of the kingdom of heaven. I just took a verse or two of each category. There's lots of other passages that deal with it in the Bible. If you're living within a temptation to live in an unsanctified manner, not separated from your sin, not living that holy life before God, if you're tempted especially toward a sexual sin, then the advice, the command is simple. Flee. Run. This is worth running from. If you're involved in that kind of a sexual sin or involved in an unsanctified life before God, then repent and make that right. Confess that before God. Get it under the blood of Christ. Turn from that sin. If you're standing strong, like actually the Thessalonians were, maintain that. Be careful. You know, the Bible encourages us that even when you're strong, be careful. Sanctification is mandatory. Not only is sanctification mandatory, it's also progressive. Notice in verse 1, 
Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Do so more and more. No matter where you are at on the spectrum, whether you, whether you just came to Christ and have just been forgiven of your sins, or whether you've been a believer for 50 years and you're walking close with God right now and you're, you're living out that personal holiness and you're set apart for God and you're fleshing that out, you know what God's will is for you? Just do it more. Not only that, but we also see sanctification is countercultural. Now, obviously, this is going to depend on the culture that you live in, right? Because if your culture reinforces biblical values, then you wouldn't necessarily be running countercultural. Our nation, for example, our nation has a Christian heritage. And you look earlier in our nation's history, the society norms would have reinforced your biblical values. Society as a whole would have condemned sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship. If a young man or woman would have violated or done something impure, their reputation would have been severely tarnished. If somebody would have uh, committed adultery with somebody else's husband or wife, their relationship would have been severely judged by the community at large. But you know what? I think we're a ways from that today. Today, in our society, relationships that are sexual outside of the marriage relationship are accepted. We have more and more people living together outside of wedlock than we, than we ever had in the past. And it's well accepted by the community at large. In fact, even celebrated by the community at large. But you know what? The fact of the matter is, we can't go there. We've got to be faithful to God, not the community. We've got to be faithful to Him and not the world. If we think God's going to change His opinion because of a majority vote, you're wrong. Look at Noah. You realize in his lifetime, he is the only one that was living righteous before God? The only one. For every teenager that has told their parents, well, everybody's doing it, Noah could actually say that. Because the fact of the matter is, is every time we feel like everybody's doing whatever it is that, that we want to do, they're not. There might be quite a few people, but everybody is not. Noah actually was the only person living out that righteous life before God. Noah did not live to regret that. Did you know that? In fact, he lived to be him and his family, the only family on the whole earth that got saved from the flood. Every other person of the everybody else doing it lived to regret it and lost their life in it. So being the only one is not a bad thing all the time. Standing up against the culture or going upstream in the culture that you're in is not a bad idea. Part of the passage that tells us that here is in verses 4 and 5. It says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. These people had different pagan religions that were there. You realize a, a temple for Aphrodite, they had like a thousand prostitutes that worked as a temple as kind of like priestesses. It was actually part of their religion to participate in sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul is writing to him and he's saying, not you. The whole culture around you might be doing that, not you. You've got to do what's right. What's the difference? They don't know God. You do. You've got to live like somebody that knows God. And so when you're out in this world and you're surrounded by people that don't know God, then obviously their life is going to be different than yours. If knowing God doesn't make a difference in your life, then there's something drastically the matter. In verse 4 of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul would say, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. You see, that's the point. We've got to be living this life of holiness, of sanctification, to please God. Not to please our friends, not to please our coworkers, not to please the fellow students or the people on the different teams that we participate with. We've got to live our life to please God. Well, not only that, we also see sanctification is responsible. In this passage that we're dealing with, he points out three different ways that we exercise responsibility. The first one is to control your body. In verse 4, it says, For this is the will 
of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. You control your body. You, you tell yourself no. You, you know, in our society today, it's looked at that to some, and for some reason, sexuality above all things is how you know yourself. And then that your identity, your whole identity is wrapped up in your sexuality. The Bible is completely from the other end of things. In our society, is pushed so strongly today that you participate in sexuality, even perversions of sexuality, in order to know who you are and to find your true identity. God's is completely different. He says, I'll tell you who you are. You're my child. It's time for you to act like it. And part of acting like it is controlling your own body. You are not just the passions of whatever comes from within you. Not only do we control our body, we control our mind. He says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do who do not know God. Not in the passion. So in other words, not only do we control our body, we need to control our passions. We need to control our mind. Don't let your mind go there. If we had time to go into it, we'd go into lots of different passages that talk about the influence of our mind. It's through our mind that God gets to our heart and through our mind that we're transformed into His image. And through our mind that we exercise spiritual warfare And so he says, you need to control your mind. And then uh, thirdly, you need to care for others. Because in verse 6, he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. You need to not defraud one another in these things. Look, if you participate sexually with somebody else, you know what? You're damaging that person. Because that sexual sin, even if they're consenting to it, is, is damaging them like we talked about earlier and even causing them to sin against their body. So if you're participating in a behavior with them that is hurting them, you're defrauding them. You're cheating them out of the blessings of God. You're damaging a fellow believer. Sometimes people will say, well, but I love them. And I think, love or lust? Now, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't say that they don't have any love for them. They do. I I I would believe that. But it's warped a little bit. Because when you think about it, Doesn't love do what is best for the person? Because see, the defrauding here that it talks about means I'm going to do something that's not so good for you because it brings a benefit to me. Doesn't love actually go the other way? Doesn't love say, you know what? I'm going to do what's best for that person, no matter what they want, no matter what I want at the moment or the passion that I'm feeling. I'm going to do what's best. Wouldn't love do that? Wouldn't that actually be the deepest level of love? For us to commit an act of sexual immorality and label it as love is just wrong. It's just wrong. You might have feelings for that person. You might care deeply for that person and love that person. But, but you are misguided in this and you're damaging that person in that activity. And so that in itself cannot be attributed to love. It's a contradiction to that. Well, very lastly, sanctification is purposeful. Verse 7, it says, For God did not call us to impurity, but to holiness. So it talks about the will of God for your life. God has a will for your life. It means He has a plan for your life, a purpose for your life. And so this uh, sin against God would take you away from God's plan, God's purpose for your life. Not only that, it uses the word call, that He calls us not to impurity, but to holiness. That call of God means that God has a purpose. He's calling you to something. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, it says we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. It means God has purpose for us. 
And that's what he says in, in 1 Thessalonians, that God has called us. And so He has purpose for us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And so He's saying, look, before the foundations of the earth were even laid, God chose you. And He chose you for a purpose. That you would be what? Holy and blameless. Same two words that are found in 1 Thessalonians that he refers to the believers with holy and blameless. Sanctification has purpose. It fulfills God's purpose in our life. So what is God's command to us here? We need to be living right. Fleshing out what it means to be a child of God, a son of God. That is God's will for our life. It's, it's, it's mandatory. It's progressive. We're going to grow a little bit at a time. Sanctification is countercultural. If you live in a culture like we do, that celebrates some things that are immoral, you're going to have to swim upstream. But you know what? I'd rather be alone with God than with everybody else and separate from God. And that's really the two options. Well, sanctification is responsible. We learn to control our bodies, control our minds, and care for other people in the process. Sanctification is also purposeful in our life.